In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we welcome you to the All Souls Sermon Podcast. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Now, if you're looking at your bulletin, you might be wondering why Father Marsh has cut his beard. I'm not Father Marsh, of course. Uh, Father Marsh is sick, so please say a prayer for him. I'm, I'm preaching in his stead today. And they say that preachers should aim to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And it takes some nerve to preach that kind of sermon. But neither our Lord nor St. Paul were lacking in the nerve department. They were not afraid to poke the bear. Take, for example, today's gospel and epistle. In the gospel, Jesus afflicts his comfortable interlocutors who want to have a kind of nice, safe, abstract discussion with him. They tell him about the Galileans who were massacred by the governor, maybe to provoke a conversation about the problem of evil. But he responds, Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And then he points to the 18 who were killed when a tower collapsed on them and says again, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And then he tells that parable about a fig tree that will be cut down if it does not begin to bear fruit, which says the same thing again implicitly, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. With these words, Jesus means to shake up his listeners, to provoke a response in them, to cut them to the quick and call them to repentance, to afflict the comfortable. In the epistle, Paul follows his Lord's example. Some of the Christians at Corinth wanted to continue dabbling in practices associated with pagan worship, to continue doing what they had done before becoming Christians. They think they can keep going to feasts in the temples of pagan gods without any harm, because they know that there is really only one God, And so there isn't anything wrong with associating with idols. Their knowledge, they think, and also the fact that they are baptized and card-carrying communicates of the first church in Corinth will inoculate them against idolatry. But Paul warns them that they're putting themselves in danger. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall, he says. He wants them to change their lives to stop dabbling in idolatry, and instead to flee from it. And he uses the story of Israel in the wilderness to afflict those comfortable Corinthians. He wants to show them that the practices they think are innocuous are in reality spiritually toxic. He wants to show them that what they think, the things that they think are indifferent to God, are in reality deeply displeasing to God that even for baptized Christians who share in the Lord's Supper, it remains a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Paul doesn't pull any punches with the Corinthians. And I want us to hear what he has to say to them, because he's also talking to you and to me, of course. And because you and I can probably use some afflicting in a nice Lenten sort of way, of course. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Now let's return to the epistle. 
Look at what Paul says in verse 6. Now, these things were our examples. And again in verse 11. Now, all these things happened unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition. Paul wants the Corinthians, most of whom are Gentile converts, to see themselves in the story of Israel. He wants them to see the events of the biblical narrative as prefiguring their own situation. He wants us to look to the story of Israel to understand our own story, to learn how to avoid their sins. In this case, he draws out the patterns of correspondence between the story of Israel in the wilderness and the situation in Corinth in order to warn the Corinthians of the danger that they are placing themselves in. Patterns of correspondence are unsettling. God gave abundant gifts to the whole people of Israel, but many of them squandered and misappropriated those gifts, thereby forfeiting them. A whole generation died in the wilderness. They were all guided with a cloud, all baptized in the Red Sea, all fed with spiritual food, that is the manna, and with spiritual drink, that is the water from the rock, But with many of them, God was not well pleased, Paul says, and they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then he says, these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. The punishments the Israelites suffered despite their many gifts are a warning to us. As John Calvin put it, If God did not spare them, he will not spare us. You see, as Christians, we have received even more precious gifts than the Israelites. By God's pure and gracious gift, we have been united to the Lord Jesus in baptism. We are nourished with his body and blood in communion. Our sins are forgiven. We are made the adopted sons and daughters of God. We're given the unspeakable privilege of addressing God as Father. And yet, and we have done absolutely nothing to deserve these gifts, have we? But like the Israelites, we too can squander God's good gifts if we misappropriate them. God's gifts are given for a purpose. They're not given that we would remain as we were before he gave them to us, but to change us. Given, as Paul says elsewhere, that we might walk in newness of life. God's gifts are meant to transform our lives. God's grace calls us to holiness. St. Peter put it this way. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. We misappropriate God's gifts when we indulge our disordered desires and do nothing to pursue holiness. That's because sin is ultimately a matter of the heart, an orientation of the will. It has to do with what we desire, what we love. And God wants to change what we love, to order our desires rightly, to draw our hearts to him, to let us pray with the psalmist, O knit my heart unto thee that I might fear thy name. 
The Lord rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, but their actions in the wilderness show that their hearts remain enthralled, their desires disordered. Their hearts were not knit to God. They were free to worship the Lord God alone, but they made a golden calf. They were called to holiness, but they indulged in sexual immorality and all sorts of other nonsense. They were given what they needed in the wilderness, but it wasn't good enough for them. The Lord led them to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, but they despaired and asked to return to Egypt. And what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness is a warning to us. The correspondence between Israel and the church warns us not to take God's grace in vain. Let him that that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall, says Paul. And what he says here to the Corinthians is very similar to what he says in his letter to the Romans. There he says, Do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul aims to afflict the comfortable. He does not leave us comfortless. He seeks to deflate spiritual presumptuousness, but not to leave us in despair. The Corinthians may be set about with many temptations, partly of their own doing, he says, but God is faithful. God, he teaches, will not suffer you to be tempted above what ye are able but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape that he may be able to bear it. God gives grace to endure temptation, to resist the attractions of the world, the flesh, and the devil. You're not able to do this on your own. Only the grace of God in Christ going before you, transforming your desires, working with you, makes you able to bear temptation. But you've got to cooperate with God's grace. You can't be like a reluctant toddler who goes all limp and forces his parent to drag him from the room. You've got to stand up and walk alongside. He's supporting you. You can't go without him, but he's not going to drag you. You won't find a way to escape temptation if you don't stop looking for a way in. Hanging about pagan temples won't help you avoid idolatry. Dallying with whatever tempts you is no way to avoid falling into sin. But God is faithful, St. Paul proclaims. This could be one of the comfortable words in Holy Communion, I think. Because it's our ground for hope, the antidote to despair, that God is faithful. Elsewhere, Paul says, the saying is sure. If we have died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. The Christian, someone said, has no security. But he may be completely confident 
not in his own resources, but in God. I am inconstant, but God is faithful. I am fickle and feeble, but God is faithful. We have no power of ourselves to help ourselves, as the Collect says, but God is faithful. And he will give us the grace to keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul. Now, to him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of All Souls Episcopal Church. For service times and more information, go to allsoulsokc.com. God be with you.